Yeah, so I put revelation, I put Jesus' perspective, because when we began, I said that um, Jesus provided two outlines for the book of Revelation, and uh, we looked at one earlier uh, in Revelation itself, and then this one tonight will be in Matthew chapter 24, and that the events, uh, uh, or that the outlines are referring to the same time, uh, is very clear in the text, and so we'll talk about that. But before we get going, let's, let's, let's pray, okay? All right, Lord Jesus, we love you, thank you. Lord, that um, you don't just know in your infallible foreknowledge of all future events, but you are in control of them. And uh, we thank you that it's not a, it's not a toss-up. Uh, there's, no, there's no gambling with the future. It, it belongs to you. It's your story. And uh, we want to understand as much as we can and, uh, and then trust you more with it. So I pray that that would be um, what happens in this. And as we looked at in the book of Revelation, the end times is about you. And it's not about the details. And um, so thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first uh, outline that we looked at is actually in Revelation chapter one, verse 19. Uh, it, it's it's kind of like, because it's in the book itself, it's like the one that we see in Acts chapter one, verse eight, where Jesus gives the outline of the propagation of the gospel. Um, you remember in Revelation 1.19, Jesus uh, told John to write the things which you have seen, uh, write down the things that are, and then write down the things that will take place after this. So three points of instruction uh, in regarding to the, the layout of the Revelation, and it in, comes in three tenses, past, present, and future. And then you notice that that outline is rather brief, um, which I think is to be expected because the rest of the book contains all the details. It fills in uh, the skeleton, as it were. But in Matthew 24, Jesus' outline is far more detailed, uh, and the language, and I think it's probably what's nice about Matthew 24, is it's not an apocalyptic language, you know, with all of the, the symbolism and all of that. It's just very... Uh, very much in plain language. Of course, until you get to, uh, what is it, verse 32, when Jesus begins to illustrate all of those things with parables. And um, so when people pick up the parables of uh, chapter 24, verse 32 to the end, and then through chapter 25, without getting the teaching first, you have to understand you're illustrating nothing. An illustration has to have something that it illustrates. Understand? So if you just jump into his parables without first going through uh, chapter 24, verse 4 through 31, you don't even know what they're illustrating. Make sense? So you have to have the teaching first. First. So, so here in Matthew 24, it's more detailed than Revelation 119, and it's in plainer language. Yeah. And then as I had mentioned a few weeks ago, was it a few weeks ago at this point? Yeah. Um, Jesus' outline in Matthew 24 uh, lines up nicely with Revelation chapter 6. The language is nearly identical. And uh, so tonight, that's what my goal is, is to kind of compare the two. Uh, now, you might want to keep your Bible open to Revelation chapter 6, 
And then as I go through 24, I won't have to run all of these slides past you between them. Um, and I don't know if a split screen would be that practical up there. But let's, let's get into this and see what happens. Matthew 24. Uh, Matthew 24 and 25 are actually one sermon. We call it the, the Olivet Discourse. Uh, tonight, though, we're just interested in the discourse itself without the parables. So Matthew 24, 1, verse 1 through 31. So the context here, um, you know, Jesus has just, uh, we, the, the, being in the temple was the whole story with the widow and the, throwing the mite into the treasury. And after that story is all done, Jesus is leaving the temple. And as he and his disciples passed by or were passing by some of the massive stones uh, that were a part of Herod's temple, some of them are still there today, uh, and they have no clue about how they got them there. Uh, they're huge. And the disciples, as they're walking past, they're looking at this, they're admiring it, and they make mention of that to Jesus. But he turns to them, and he basically drops this bomb on them, saying this. He says, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then Jesus walks away and goes up to the Mount of Olives. So he just drops that statement on them um, and walks away. And of course, being startled by Jesus' comment, they then go to him in private uh, to hopefully sort this all out, okay? Because Jesus' comment implied the result of war the result of war, okay, and the defeat of the nation of Israel because nothing else could account for the destruction of the temple. Nothing else could. It was the most sacred and guarded structure in all Israel and any attempt by anyone to destroy it would be a call to arms. And if the temple was destroyed, it could only mean that the Jews were defeated once again, okay, once again. Also, the destruction of the temple did not exactly fit uh, with what the disciples understood about the mission of Messiah. So it was very perplexing to them. See, because of a rabbinical blind spot uh, in the rabbi's study of Old Testament prophecy, the disciples were only looking forward to this kind of Messiah that would crush all of Israel's enemies would liberate the nation of Israel from oppression and then reestablish the Davidic kingdom. Now they had this very tunnel vision uh, about Messiah so that all of the things pertaining to his first coming were ignored. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, uh, things regarding his suffering, uh, his initial ministry there, the destruction of the temple which meant the defeat of Israel in this, what they believed was the age of Messiah, didn't fit that scenario. So they're confused, they're concerned, and so they go to him for clarity, and this is what they ask him. And it's funny that it's in private, because to them, he just said something so not messianic. And if it wasn't what they believed to be messianic, it could put doubts in their hearts about who the Messiah was, okay? 
So they kind of go to Jesus like this, you know, is anybody watching? Is anybody listening? And they say, tell us what or when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So there's three questions here. Uh, When will these things be? Uh, What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Three questions posed to to Jesus and the answers are what follow uh, in the Olivet Discourse. The first question has to do with the timing of the destruction of the Jewish temple. Uh, The last two I think are pretty self-evident. His coming, what's the sign of your coming? and the end of the age. I think we can, I think anybody can figure that out, especially when it happens. So let's, let's look at the Olivet Discourse. The, uh, the, the chapter, or the, the, the stuff that we're discussing outlines nicely, um, and it's actually from, some of it's a repeat of what uh, the rest of it is. So there's the beginning of sorrows, verse four through eight, and there's tribulation and martyrdom, verse 9 through 13. And then there's the end. So the, this first part from verse 4 to 14 brings us from the initial uh, stage of things to the very end. That would be uh, the second coming. And then in verse 15, he starts over again. And we'll discuss why he's doing that with the abomination of desolation, verse 15 through 20. Great tribulation, verse 21 through 28, and then the coming of the Son of Man, which concludes uh, the age, uh, as they were asking about. So, all right. Let's look at these divisions real quick. The first division uh, in the outline is verse eight, where Jesus says that what he has just discussed is the beginning of sorrows. So he explains all these things, he gives all these details, and then in verse eight he says, this is the beginning of sorrows. So this period of time that he calls the beginning of sorrows, it's gonna be a time of great deception. Okay, that's verse four. Uh, Of people claiming to be the Christ, verse five. Uh, Many deceived, verse five. Wars and rumors of wars, verse six. Uh, Nation will rise against nation, verse seven. And he also says kingdom against kingdom. And then he talks about famine, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places, verse seven. So notice the verse three there, that deception is rampant. Uh, Truth is, uh, you know, basically cast to the ground. And then also notice that in verse six, if you're there, Jesus adds a little note in the middle of it. And I think he adds it because there's a temptation to think something when all of these things begin to happen. And he says, see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet, verse 16, verse 16. The temptation, I think, is that when these things begin to happen as Jesus describes them, that we will think the end is immediately at hand. And Jesus says, don't think that it's quite that close. Now, there's always been deceivers and deception, right? It's always been happening. Uh, There's always been wars and rumors of wars. I mean, that was happening uh, before Jesus, the deception, wars, rumors of wars. Uh, All of that stuff that's mentioned there has always been happening. Uh, Even people claiming to be the Christ, 
Now, to the Jew, that was they were claiming to be the Messiah. And there had been men before Jesus that were claiming to be Messiah. So it had all been going on before this time. And it's been going on since that time. But Jesus isn't talking about business as usual. That's not the sense uh, that he's giving when he delivers this discourse. He's predicting the unusual, which he is saying merits our special attention. Okay, it's the unusual. There'll be something markedly different about the nature of the deceivers and the deception. And there's going to be something different about these wars, which give the impression that the end will immediately follow. But Jesus says that it will not mark the immediate end. The end is near, as Jesus will say later, but this is not, the beginning of sorrows is not the very end, okay? But it does indeed lead to it. And now when we look at Revelation, uh, we would have to conclude uh, from the order of events in there that chapter six describes the beginning of sorrows, because that's the beginning of the, the introduction of all of the problems, chapter six, verse one. And what we find there is that the six seals synchronize nicely with the beginning of sorrows in Matthew 24, four through eight, okay? In Matthew 24, five, Jesus says that false Christ will come deceiving many, okay? Now, uh, just as a note, many false Christs have come uh, and they've gone and they've deceived people, but there hasn't ever been a false Christ who has deceived many, many. They've been small pockets of these people running around that hardly catch anybody's notice, okay? We've had a few in America. Africa's had plenty. Uh, but they come, they go, they're gone. And, um, but as far as deceiving many in the sense that Jesus is trying to communicate, that hasn't happened. And also what is interesting is we know from John's epistles and from 2 Thessalonians chapter two that out of the many pretenders will come the one guy, okay? who will pretend to be Christ, he'll rise among them and he will be the antichrist. He'll be the big dog. Now, understand in, in Koine Greek, the word anti, anti does not really mean that which is contrary, as it does in English, okay? It refers to something or someone who takes the place of something or someone. It's a substitute. Now, it's even a counterfeit, all right? And uh, the antichrist, though he uh, is very contrary to Christ and to God. Uh, his intention is to deceive people into thinking that he is the Christ, that he is the Jewish Messiah. Uh, when Jesus was speaking with the leaders of Israel in John chapter five, verse 39 through 43, he said something interesting, uh, perhaps even hunting. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But... You're not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive, okay? Now, it's not a hypothetical. Jesus is talking about something specific. Someone will come to the Jews, and they will treat him the opposite of how they treated Jesus. They crucified Christ, but they will crown the Antichrist. They will crown him, okay? And in Revelation 6, 2, we see a man 
riding on a white horse, carrying a bow, he's crowned, and he's going about conquering. Now, according to rabbinical, uh, the blind spot, the only thing that they could think about was this conquering Messiah, okay? This sounds much more like the Christ that the Jews were looking for, a conquering king riding on a white horse. But he's a fraud, he's a, he's a false Christ. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, John says that when Jesus returns the second time, he will be riding a white horse, but he won't be carrying a bow. He'd be carrying what's called a romphia. And a romphia was a massive sword. It's not the makaria, you know, that the, the word used when Jesus says, Ask the disciples in Luke, do you have a sword? Uh, He said, Makaria. He didn't mean, do you have this big battle sword? It's it's literally six feet long. Uh, He's talking about a little little sword. Uh, When we talk about the sword of the spirit, it's the same word. But the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth, uh, it's the business sword, okay? Uh, Coming back with wrath and the vengeance of God. So a little different, uh, Makaria versus the Ramphia. Also, this person is committed to deception and falsehood. Daniel tells us that when this individual comes, he will cast truth to the ground, Daniel 8, 12. Now, if our world was ever ready, if they've ever been groomed for a lie, uh, I would say that we're prime, okay? Uh, We're ready to accept just about anything if it's said loud enough and long enough um, by the right people. Then Matthew 24, 6 and 7a, the beginning there, talks about wars, rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. This fits very nicely with the second horse of the apocalypse, the second seal, Revelation 6, 4, where the rider robs the earth of peace and war breaks out. Okay, notice that he doesn't take peace away from just a region of the earth, but peace is taken from the whole earth, the whole earth. This is a global, not regional thing, just like Jesus was saying. And then in Matthew 24, 7b, Jesus says that there will be famines. Uh, Famines, as you know, have a tendency to bring hunger. Uh, Famine frequently follows war. Uh, We know that not because America is so much, has has ever been war-torn, at least in recent times, but when a massive war effort is going on In the land, uh, people have a tendency to ignore their crops. And then what happens is, the next season, there's nothing, okay? So the product of war is famine, okay? Yeah, correlates with the third horse, the third seal, Revelation 6, 5 through 6, where scarcity of food has inflated uh, the price of food to astronomical prices, Uh, John is told that a a quart of wheat will be sold for a whole day's wage and three quarts of barley will be sold for a whole day's wage. So really what he's saying is a day's wage would would purchase one whole meal if it consisted of wheat or three meals if it consisted of barley. Those are hard times when you buy one meal with a whole day's wage. Okay, that's tough times. Yeah. And then he says that, you know, not to harm the oil or the wine, the idea is that if you bought wheat or barley, you would not be able to afford oil, which is needed to make bread. 
and you certainly wouldn't have enough for staple wine. Now also, in worlds that utilize staple wine, uh, if that's something they use regularly, that usually indicates there's a problem with a, lo a lot of the water, okay? So it's, it appears that it'll be in a time when clean water will be limited, short supply. In Matthew 24, seven C, Jesus says that there will be pestilences, pestilences, plural, okay? Now the word pestilence is fairly generic, okay? And uh, it has a broad application. It can mean disease, it can mean a pest, it can mean troubles, uh, it can even be applied to a person. Uh, Paul was called a pestilence, uh, and he probably wore that as a badge of honor because it was given to him by uh, the leaders of Israel uh, who hated him for preaching the gospel. That's in Acts 24, five. Now often the result of pestilences, especially when they follow war, is that it depletes what remains so that there's chaos and there's great difficulties, okay? Uh, we see this following the fourth horse, the fourth seal, Revelation six, seven through eight, where the rider was given power to wipe out a fourth of the earth's population. It says by way of sword, hunger, death. Can you think of a more generic term? They died from death, all right? Uh, and by the beasts of the earth. So after war, we often have famine, and because of the break in the supply chain, there's great hunger, and because of extreme inflation, you have poverty, which of course leads to the, the uh, depleted uh, quality of life, which causes all kinds of problems with health, and because of the hunger and poverty, you have violence and you have death. Uh, imagine what America would look like if the, flu the food supply chain was cut off. Do you think we would just be very congenial about that with one another? Uh, I often think that anybody that's known as a prepper or Mormons because they're known for storing away you know, tons of food, um, they would be the first to die because people would be so desperate uh, that they would kill people to survive. And uh, that seems to be the sense of what's happening in this progression of things, where Antichrist rolls in, there's war, there's famine, there's pestilence, there's just a depletion of all the norms. And uh, I once read an article about a young lady that shot her dad with a bow and arrow uh, because she, he took her cell phone away. It's hard times, <laughs> yeah. And then there's another element in here is because this is placed upon a global scale, where will the relief come from? So when there's a famine that breaks out in a region of Africa, they have the rest of the world, philanthropists, benevolent societies to pour relief in there. But if it happens globally, where will the relief come from? So we're talking about the, the most severe of, of times, but it can still get worse as the text goes on. Yeah, all kinds of troubling things that will devastate the world. Um, now there's one thing that's not mentioned at this point in Revelation uh, in the seals here, so far as earthquakes. Jesus mentions them in various places, but earthquakes will certainly show up later in the text of Revelation, okay? And then at the end, verse eight, Jesus describes these things as just the beginning of sorrows. 
That's the beginning, okay? The four horses, the four first seals just introduce the sorrows of what we would call the end times. And then Jesus continues according uh, to a sequence of events in verse nine saying, then, then, that is after all of that, something else is coming, okay? Leaving the discussion of the initial sorrows to talk about something worse and that these sorrows, that they increase and become worse is implied by the phrase, of course, this is the beginning of sorrows, it's just the beginning. And it's indicated by the Greek word as well for sorrows, which is literally birth pangs. So mothers, birth pangs, they get worse, don't they? Until there's delivery, okay? Jesus talks about that too. Uh, It's miserable uh, until the baby is born and then there's great joy, okay? Well, the delivery is the second coming, okay? That's when uh, we have great joy, but things can be very troubling until that time. So we have a clear indication that things get worse. How so? Verse nine through 14 says, believers will be delivered up to tribulation and martyrdom. Verse nine. Now, if this goes anything like uh, the early church, the first 300 years of the church, uh, all of this uh, terrible things when they did occur in the Roman Empire, guess who they blamed? The church. One of the sayings was, when the Tiber River floods, Christians to the lions. So they would blame the Christians for the flooding of the Tiber because the Greek gods, Roman gods would be upset with the Romans tolerating the existence of the Christians so they would flood the Tiber, the gods would. And uh, so they would then have a mass feeding of the lions, Christian as the food. So martyrdom, Uh, believers will be hated by all nations, verse nine, many will be offended, betray, and hate one another, verse 10. So the next stage of sorrows will be marked by the killing of God's people, not people in general as a product of war, but specifically God's people, so martyrdom. And then it says not hated by some nations, like say Christians are hated in some Islamic nations, but he says all nations, all nations. That's different. This corresponds perfectly with the fifth seal in Revelation 6, 9, which says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. This is martyrdom. Okay, the souls under the altar in heaven. These are people that have been martyred. Okay. This time of greater troubles continues. Says many, there will be many deceiving prophets. Verse eleven. The love of many will grow cold, verse 12. But the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations, verse 14, and then the end, and then the end. Yeah, so during this time, deception will increase by way of false prophets. And this is interesting too, just as one man will stand out as the antichrist, one man will ultimately rise up as the false prophet, Revelation 16, verse 13, and 19, and 20. Uh, He will essentially be the mouthpiece uh, for Antichrist and the miracle worker. Uh, Just similarly to the way that the the prophets in the Old Testament were for God, the mouthpiece, and would perform miracles in his name. But Jesus says, in spite of all this, the gospel of the kingdom will indeed be preached to all nations. Uh, Jesus said that 
Um, Upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will never prevail against it. And the promise still stands. There's nothing that can stop the propagation of the gospel. It will continue until Christ returns. And once it reaches all those places, in that time, he says, the end will come. So before things get better, things will get exponentially worse, even after the beginning of sorrows. And then Jesus expands on the details that precede the end in verse 29 and 31, 29 through 31, saying this. Um, I'm not gonna read it to you, I don't have time. I'm running out of time. So the signs of his coming and the end of the age, that was another issue that they were asking. And Jesus says that uh, the sun will be darkened, verse 29. The moon will not give its light. Of course, we know why that is. The sun fails to give its light, so will the moon. Uh, the stars will fall, verse 29. That's probably a description of a meteor shower, okay? Uh, The sign of the Son of Man will appear, verse 30, and then the angels will gather the elect from the four corners of the earth, from all over the planet. It appears to be kind of a horizontal rapture, okay? And I think that's explained later in Revelation as well. So this whole thing here corresponds with the sixth seal in Revelation 6, 12 through 17, where again we have the sun darkened, Okay. Now, the question is, you know, what is it that makes the sun darkened? Um, typically, it's smoke. Uh, clouds can do that, as we know in Washington. We won't even know that the events of Revelation are happening in Washington. We're like, <laughs> same as normal. And then oftentimes, when there is, like, smoke that does that to the sun, the moon looks as though it's red. And that's what happens. There's this blood moon, if you were. The moon turns to blood, turns red. Stars fall. And then this is what's so interesting. The sky rolls back like a scroll so that the face of the one sitting on the throne and the lamb can be seen, which fills the heart of the wicked with dread as it ought. Okay, yeah. So this is my understanding thus far about Revelation 6 in regard to Matthew 24 is that as Matthew 24 is an overview of the whole end, beginning with verse four to 31, okay, the beginning of sorrows to the second coming, that chapter six, the uh, the six seals that, there are seven seals that wrapped around the scroll that, Jesus recovers from his father, that those seals represent the contents of the entire thing. So it's my position, and I know not everybody holds this, but the chapter six of the seals is an overview of all of Revelation. Because I believe that what happens when the sky rolls back like a scroll, that that is the second coming. Okay, when people are running for cover because Christ is returning to judge the earth. Okay, and so that's my position. And because it fits so nicely into Matthew 24, that's why I hold that position, okay? Um, If you like that uh, for your position, great. If not, uh, we we can coexist just fine. All right, all right. Now, Jesus's details in this discourse here in Matthew 24, of course, they're not as exhaustive as John's in the Revelation, uh, but the similarities with 
this discourse and 24, they're just, they're too striking to ignore, don't you think? I mean, it's just like if you took transparencies of each, you could almost lay them over one another. They're, they're striking. And, uh, but not as detailed for Jesus. And besides, you know, John uh, had 13 some chapters following to describe all of this, okay, dedicated to the subject, whereas Jesus was just trying to answer three questions. So we should find more uh, in John's. John is the one that fills in the blanks, okay? So the Olivet Discourse essentially communicates the same thing, I believe, I think it's obvious that it's um, the same as chapter six, but then communicates in a, in a broader sense all that happens uh, in the Revelation. Well, let's come back to um, Matthew 24, because I want to look at verse 15 again. Verse 15. We didn't look at it at all, actually. So in Matthew 24, as we've already said, Jesus presents two different uh, periods, okay? two different stages, one of uh, uh, greater event uh, that, that concludes with the, the greatest of all events. Okay? We have the beginning of sorrows, and then we have the second wave of greater suffering followed by his coming, the end of the age. Okay, now because Jesus says that the end follows on the heels of this latter period of greater suffering, in verse 14, the word therefore in verse 15 looks back to what happened in that period. So verse 14 ends, Jesus says, and then the end will come. But then he continues further in verse 15. And he says, therefore... So what he's doing now is he's looking back to that last period to describe an event that took place, all right? That's super important for understanding what we might call a chronology of the end, okay? And what we find is that in verse 15 through 28, uh, Jesus takes a closer look at this period of greater suffering, okay? Now that's actually a common style of teaching uh, for the Hebrews, Okay, uh, we see this, uh, for example, the same kind of, of, of um, technique, if you will, in Genesis 1 and, and Genesis 2. Genesis 1 is the big picture of the seven days of creation, while Genesis 2 is dedicated to the finer details of the sixth day of creation. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. Verse 15 through 28 are the finer details of what occurs during this time of tribulation and martyrdom from verses nine through 14. So in verse 15, we see what initiates this time of suffering and then some of those finer details that lead to the second coming and the end of the the age. Here is verse 15, he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, and what he's saying is in the, the stuff that we've already discussed, okay, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. The abomination of desolation. Jesus says, you need to understand this. And then he gives a reference, doesn't he? He says it was spoken of by Daniel. So if you're gonna understand it, where do you think you gotta go? That's right. He's saying Daniel talked about this, you should go learn what Daniel said, and then you'll understand what I'm talking about, okay? Abomination of desolation. That will require some discussion. And he says then, he goes on in verse 21, he says that this abomination of desolation um, initiates what is called the great tribulation. 
You see it there? He says, then, following this, there will be great tribulation. Okay? Now, he's already mentioned tribulation in verse 9. And remember, this is filling in. It's, it's describing further uh, what happens during that time. So this event, whatever it is, the abomination of desolation, it takes place between verse 8 and 9. It stands in the middle of those things. There's the beginning of sorrows. What is it that brings on the greater sorrows? It's the abomination of desolation. Okay? And when he said abomination of desolation, all of those Jewish boys knew exactly what he was talking about. Okay? They might not have understood all the details behind it, but they have a celebration uh, that commemorates the fixing of the first abomination of desolation by Antiochus Epiphany. Uh, what do they celebrate? They're going to do it real soon here. Hanukkah. That's right. It's the celebration of the rededication of the temple after it was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphany. That's, we'll talk about that, not tonight. So the event of the abomination of desolation, it takes place between verse 8 and verse 9. It's the thing that brings the, the, um, the beginning of suffering to an end and instigates the great tribulation. And in verse 16 through 21, Jesus tells everyone who sees it, those who see the abomination of desolation, he basically says, drop everything you're doing and run for your life, and run for your life. Because at that time, Jerusalem and the Jews will face the greatest tribulation the world has ever witnessed, verse 21, okay? This great tribulation, Jesus says, will be so bad that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened, verse 22. Bad times are coming, okay? Yeah, so the abomination of desolation, whatever it is, it needs to be investigated, mostly because Jesus says it needs to be, but that's for another night. Now, real quick, in review, um, so far, Jesus has answered all three of the questions that the disciples asked. When will these things be? Okay, referring to the destruction of the temple. That's gonna occur uh, at the time of the abomination of desolation. Then they say, what will be the sign of your coming? Well, in the text, it, it seems to be him appearing in the sky. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Now, we're just going to assume that that's him coming on the clouds, okay? And then what will be the sign of the end of the age? What will be the sign of the end of the age? Well, it doesn't exactly say in the text, but when Jesus appears in the clouds with a sword and uh, the wicked are running for their lives, I think it's a pretty good indication that the end of the age is there and a new age is about to be born, okay? And uh, perhaps it has something to do with the angels gathering the elect uh, from the four corners of the earth uh, but we're gonna have to assume that the disciples are satisfied with the answer. Uh, whether they understood all of it, uh, I don't know, I don't know. Um, maybe there's some more clarity in what they understood in Acts chapter one, and that'll come up in our discussion later. So um, next week, we will discuss the abomination of desolation and what it is, what it is not, and how it fits in what we might say the scheme of things in eschatology, okay? Clear as mud, all right? So uh, in your own time, if you want, you could chart
the uh, Matthew 24 verses four through 31 with Revelation chapter six and put them side by side. It's kind of a fun little study. And um, yeah, I think if anybody knows what they're talking about when it comes to Revelation, it's Jesus. And so that's why I, I use him as uh, my hermeneutic, my rule of interpretation. And, uh, and then when we look at the abomination of desolation in light of those things, I think it gives the clearest picture of how things will unravel in the end. And uh, we'll look at Daniel, of course, we have to, in obedience to Jesus, and then we'll compare it with Revelation, and then I believe the pieces uh, fall nicely into place. Again, as I said, we don't wanna get so much into the trees that we don't see the forest, because I think there's a lot of things in the forest we can spend way too much time arguing about, whereas the large landmarks of eschatology stand out, and, uh, and I don't think they're really arguable at all. So, all right, well, let's stand up and we'll pray. If you guys wanna study the abomination of desolation, please do, and uh, we'll look at it. If you believe the abomination of desolation happened in 70 AD, um, we're not gonna agree next week. Uh, and, I'll, and, and I believe it's demonstrably not the case from Josephus's uh, eyewitness account. He's the only eyewitness account we have, and his description of it cannot be the abomination of desolation. So we'll talk about that. All right. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that there's this great consistency with, throughout your word, uh, whether it be in the, the doctrinal books or those pertaining to eschatology, and, uh, which is a wonder in itself when we think that uh, uh, science textbooks over the last 50 years can hardly agree on a thing except that we're here, and I think some scientists aren't even sure about that these days. But your word is consistent, and, uh, and it is for us to put the details together. And uh, so I pray that you just continue to be with us as we do that, and that clarity would come to us. So we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right.